0: 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 14. The title of this message is Beware. And I follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber." For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And then the Lord knows how to deliver a godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority." They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word today, we find ourselves living in a day and age where the darkness around us is getting darker by the day, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us today, that you would enlighten us today, that we would be aware of the deceptions going on around us, and also, Lord, that, that we would just have a sense of hope and purpose as being your people living in this day and age and this time and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moderate city back east, there were these two brothers that were just rotten, evil men. They were wicked men who were just caught up in a lot of crime and corruption. In fact, everything that went on in this little moderate city that was ungodly, these guys had a part in it. Prostitution, drug dealing, gambling. And as a result of that, they both had become very, very wealthy because of their criminal practices. Well, the older of these two brothers died in a car accident. And his younger brother, he really wanted to have a nice funeral service, a memorial service, in a church for his uh, older brother. But the problem was, Who would do it? I mean, no one liked these two guys. So he found a church that was in need of a lot of repair. It was a growing church, but the building was just in in dire straits. And so he met with the pastor and said, hey, I want to hold my brother's memorial service here, and I want you to do it. And I want you to tell everybody that comes that my brother was a saint. And if you'll do that, I'll write you a check for $800,000, and you can make the repairs on your building that you need to make. Well, what was this pastor going to do, Right? Well, Jesus said that we're to be wise, as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And he remembered that and he thought for a moment and he says, okay, I'll tell you what, you've got a deal on one condition. You write the check right now. So the brother writes the check and pastor puts it in his pocket, quickly puts it in the bank, and uh, people, you know, as it was leading up to the day of the memorial service, everybody was wondering, like, what is this pastor going to say about this guy? The church was packed because just out of curiosity, and the pastor got up in front of everybody, and he said this. He began by saying, we're all here because this individual has died, and I just want you to know that this guy was a dirty, rotten scoundrel who caused this community nothing but trouble, prostitution, drug dealing, gambling, theft, you name it, he was a part of it. He was a horrible man. But compared to his younger brother, he was a saint. <laughs> well, here in Second Peter chapter 2, Peter warns us about those who would try to influence the flock of God in a negative way. Those who would seek to manipulate the body of Christ for their own personal gain. Now you might recall back in John chapter 21 after the resurrection that Jesus met with his disciples there on the shores of Galilee and it was there that he commissioned Peter to his pastoral ministry and he told them this. He said, Peter, I want you to feed the flock of God and I want you to tend the lambs. And that really is the calling of any pastor, to feed the flock the word of God and to tend. That word tend means to, to take care of them. And Peter has been faithful to that calling. We've seen this in 2 Peter. As in chapter 1, he's been feeding the flock. as He's been reminding us that we've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's been reminding us that that our Christian faith is built on the solid foundation of eyewitness testimony and the sure word of prophecy. But as we come here to chapter 2, we're going to see that Peter is begin, is gonna begin to tend the flock, to care for them. And, and the way that he is going to do that is by warning the church. He has some warnings. He has some things that he wants them to beware of. And it's been said that a pastor who only feeds the sheep and doesn't warn the sheep is only fattening the sheep up for the kill. And so Peter is warning the church about false teachers. And warnings are normal part, is a normal part of the Bible because you see, God warns us. He loves us enough to warn us because he doesn't want, you know, anything. He warns us about things that might hurt us or hurt the church. I like taking walks in my neighborhood. I do a lot of prayer walks in the morning before work and I, I do, you know, I walk my dog in the afternoon and all around my neighborhood you'll see these beware of dog signs. And some of the dogs behind that fence, you're like, okay, I get this, because, I mean, that dog looks like it could eat you, you know. But but there's some houses where it says, beware of dog, and you look behind the fence, and it's like a little poodle, you know. And you're like, really? I'm supposed to be afraid of that? Well, listen, God is not warning us about poodles. He describes these false teachers in this way. Look at verse 12 and verse 13, as natural brute beasts who feast on people beware here in chapter 2 verses 1 through 14 Peter is going to give us three principles that he wants us to keep in mind as it relates to false teachers he wants us to be aware to be assured and to be aligned to be aware of their falsehood to be assured of their fate And to be aligned with the faithful. That'll be our outline for today. Let's begin with to be aware of their falsehood. There's five things that he wants us to watch out for. Number one is he wants us to be aware of the fact that they're always going to be around. Look at verse one again. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. There have always been false teachers, and there will always be false teachers. There's always going to be the wheat, or excuse me, the tares that wants to mix itself among the wheats. In fact, one of the most sobering passages, I think, in the Bible for any pastor is there in Acts chapter 20. It happens when the apostle Paul goes to the island of Miletus. And he calls for the elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus, to come and meet with him. It's going to be like a little mini pastor's retreat, a pastor's conference. And this is, he loves these guys. This is a church that past, Paul pastored for three years, longer than any church that he had ever pastored. And he knows that this is going to be the last time that he sees them. And so this is what he tells them. Well, We'll, we'll see, it should be on the screen in verse twenty. Eight, he says, therefore, this is his word to these guys. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock of God, the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Pause there just for a minute. I love this verse because it's a great reminder of who the church belongs to. He calls it, notice, the church of God. It's God's church. It's also a great verse in dealing with the deity of Christ because he says it's the church of God which he purchased with his blood. So it's the church of God, but who's the one who purchased it with the shedding of his blood? Jesus. So he's telling us here that Jesus is God. And it's also a reminder for pastors and leaders to take heed to ourselves, to pay attention to our walks, and to know that we can't live in compromise. I love this verse. But as Paul continues, he tells these guys why they need to take heed to themselves. In verse 29, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's a heavy statement. Guys, know this. Savage wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. They're going to come in among you. But here's what you need to understand. Wolves... Don't show up in a setting like this dressed as wolves. We have a security team here, man. Those guys would be driven off the property in in a moment. Wolves don't show up looking like wolves. They show up looking like sheep. They want to blend in. But you can always tell somebody who's a wolf, because this is what wolves do. Wolves prey on the sheep. Wolves eat sheep. So, the first thing that Peter says hey, be aware, there's a good chance there's wolves in our midst. So, be on guard, be alert, be watchful, be on the lookout. Have your wolf meter out, is what he's saying. The second thing he wants us to be aware of is their subtle approach. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. The word secretly there could actually be translated subtly. In other words, their approach, it's not blatant. It's not outright. It's subtle. They have the right vocabulary. They just have a different dictionary. They say the right things. They talk about the gospel and they talk about Jesus and they might talk about salvation. They they can, you know, sound really, really good. They can even come across profound. Like you're like, wow, did you hear that guy? He's so eloquent. But later on, you find yourself kind of scratching your head going, "But, but what did he say? You ever do that? You know, I remember being at a conference once and I was listening to somebody and he was answering a question and it sounded just so incredible, but then everybody afterwards was kind of, but 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 what did he say? That's that's what these guys are like. It's why you have to buy their books or their DVD series. It's like, okay, that sounded amazing, but I got to go, you know, I got to go over this again to really, really get it. It's, It's subtle. They subtly mix the truth with a little bit of lies. They mix the truth with a little bit of poison. That's that's how it starts. But once they have their following, they flip that. Where they were subtly mixing a little bit of poison with with a lot of truth, once they get their following, they flip that to where they're mixing a lot of poison with just a little bit of truth. But you don't see it. That's why we need to be Bereans. You know, the Bereans were those who, in listening to the Apostle Paul, it says that they took everything that Paul said and fact-checked. They went back to the Scriptures to see and make sure that what Paul was saying was so. So Peter says we need to be aware that they're always around. We need to be aware of their subtle approach. Number three, we need to be aware of their tactics, that they subtly, he says, bring in these destructive heresies that are really aimed at two things. He mentions them here, denying the Lord Jesus. In other words, they, they always want to deny the deity of Christ, the idea that Jesus is God. They'll say, no, no, he's not a God, he's a God, or he's just a great teacher, or he was a, a wonderful man, but he's, he's not God in human flesh. So anytime I'm talking to somebody, where I start, my wolf meter starts to come out, I'm like, okay, tell me this, who's Jesus? Is he God? I want to know what they say to that. And the other thing they deny is the atonement. He puts it this way, they deny the Lord who bought them. In other words, the emphasis is always on salvation by the works of men. The emphasis is always on what we need to do for God rather than what God has done for us. And true Bible teaching, note this, church, should always spend more time emphasizing what God has done for us than what we need to be doing for God. And if you ever find yourself listening to someone who's emphasizing over and over again what we need to be doing for God, beware. So we're to be aware that they're always around. We're to be aware of their subtle approach. We're to be aware of their, their tactics They they bring in these destructive heresies. And number four, we're to be aware of their motives. Look at verse three. In fact, it's going to be on the screen. This is verse three in the ESV. I like the way it puts it. It says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In other words, the idea of exploitation, they want something from you. They want power. They want money. They want, want status. They want to make merchandise of you. So they're going to seek to exploit you. They want to take advantage of God's people. Notice the end of verse 14. It says that they entice unstable souls. They target those weak in the faith, in other words. Again, going back to Acts chapter 20, Paul says something so startling there to these guys. So he said, Hey guys, know this, that, that savage wolves are going to come in among you. And then he says this in, in verse 30, also from among yourselves. Boy, that must have got their attention. Men also will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. This is also a characteristic of false teachers. They are prone to draw people to themselves and not to Jesus. Beware if you start hearing somebody saying things like hey I've attained a higher spirituality. And if you study like with me, you too can attain or or I have this secret revelation or I have these special gifts and insights and you too can be like me and Paul says hey from right among yourselves some of you if you don't take heed you're going you're going to become this person. You know Paul told us in Philippians chapter 2 that we should never, ever think too highly of ourselves. And I always get leery when I'm talking to somebody who's you know, talking about how spiritually they are. Beware. They want to entice you. They want to exploit you. And over the years, there have been many different ploys to fleece the flock of God. Years ago, there was a church that was, was selling splinters from the cross. Little pieces of wood. They sold so many, they could have built the Mayflower. <laughs> it's crazy. And people are like, oh, I want one of those. In Naples, Italy, there was a church that for a 100 years sold vials of milk that they said came from Mary's breast milk that was used to feed Jesus. And somehow they had gallons and gallons and gallons of it. And people bought it. There was a church that was selling little vials of water from the Jordan River for $25. You know, you can get one of those in Israel for a buck. And the water of the Jordan's like really dirty. Sorry for all of those who were baptized with us back in Israel, but it's not a very clean river. But anyway, crazy, this type of thing. And one of the, one of the areas where we really see this is in the word faith movement today. These guys that get on, you know, television and say things like, you've got to give in order to get, that you want a blessing, then you need to give to our ministry. And the more faith you have, the more that you're going to give and the greater the blessing will be that you receive. And if those guys really believe what they're saying, they should be writing checks to you, right? I've got so much faith, I'm going to write you a hundred thousand dollar check. Cause so I'm going to, I get a blessing because of that. It's crazy. And whenever I hear these guys, I think, who in the world would just buy into this garbage? But notice what Peter says in verse 2, many will be deceived. And these guys have tens of thousands of followers. I was reading in the Christian Post this week. It had a little article on the, the richest pastors in, in America, which is kind of an oxymoron to me. But um, it, it listed this list, and the top of the list was Kenneth Copeland with a net worth of $350 million. He's one of these word faith teachers, fleecing the flock. So we're to beware that they're always around, beware of their subtly, beware of their tactics, how they distort the truth, beware of their motives. And finally, number five, beware of how they despise authority. These guys, this is one of the things they have no accountability. They're unteachable. They don't respond to correction because they think they're above everyone else. I want to read verse 10 to you in the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, And especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority, bold, arrogant people, they are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. They're bold and arrogant. Somebody who is bold is one who rides roughshod over the rights, opinion, and interest of others. Somebody who is arrogant goes even further because they can't even be reasoned with. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to who the dignitaries are that he's speaking of or the glorious ones, as he mentions here. Is he speaking about church leaders, government leaders? Is he speaking about the angels or even God himself? And many scholars believe that because of what follows in verse 11, that he's actually speaking about the angels and God, because it says, if you note this in verse 11, that even the angels in heaven don't speak evil of other angels. They're not speaking evil of each other. That could be what this is referring to, that these guys are so high and mighty and think so highly of themselves that they'll speak evil of anyone, including the angels and even God. But the point that Peter's making, don't miss this, is they're unteachable. They're unapproachable. They're arrogant. Now, after telling us everything that we need to beware of, it's almost as if Peter anticipates our frustration. The frustration that maybe you felt when you see this type of thing going on and people that are doing this type of thing and they have the followers and you're like, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? You know, David said that, you ever do that? Lord, why do the wicked prosper? How, how long, Lord, how long is this gonna go on? And it seems like Peter is anticipating that because the next thing that he wants us to, to know is he wants us to be assured of their fate. He wants us to know, to make no mistake about it, that these guys are going to get theirs. And so over and over again in this passage, the, 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 their fate, the fact that these guys are going to be judged is put before us, and their judgment is going to be severe. Look at verse 1. He says, they bring on themselves swift destruction. Verse 3, their destruction does not slumber. In other words, it's not going to be delayed. Verse 12, and they will utterly perish in their own corruption. Verse 13, and they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Over and over again, he's reminding us, hey, be assured of this, be assured of their faith. They're going to be judged. And to highlight, I want you to catch this, how severe their judgment will be, Peter gives us three examples in verses four through nine. He starts off with talking about the angels who rebelled. And scholars aren't really sure exactly what Peter's talking about here. Could be the angels that rebelled with Satan. But it also could be a reference to Genesis chapter 6, and I don't have time to go into that. You can kind of read that passage on your own later. But, but there's a group of angels that God took and put them in hell and put them in chains, 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 and they are going to be reserved in there. They're just stuck there until the day of judgment. And then he highlights the world that was flooded in the days of Noah because of the world's rebellion against God. And then the third example he gives is the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities that had rebelled against God and pursued all manner of immorality, including gross homosexuality. And these two cities were completely obliterated by God. Now, by using those three examples, I think it's Peter's way of saying, hey, this is what's in store for these false teachers, and that should really scare the H-E double hockey sticks out of these guys. But it doesn't, because they're above everything. Now, some would ask this question, why is God so harsh in his judgment? That's heavy. And you think about Paul. Remember Paul in the book of Galatians? He's talking about the false teachers that were coming in there, and they were telling everybody, hey, if you really want to be a Christian, you also need to be circumcised. You need to follow Judaism, and so you need to be circumcised. And Paul would say this, I wish, this is in the Bible, I wish these guys would castrate themselves. It's heavy. And here's what I want to remind you of. Paul didn't write that. That was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. That's how God said I wish these guys would castrate themselves, that they would cut themselves off. Why is God so harsh when it comes to dealing with false teachers? And Here's why. God hates anything that hurts his kids. And I think you get that, right? As a parent. I mean, what parent here? What mother here? You, you're at the park and you see another mom feeding her toddler poison. I mean, she's got the bottle, it's got the scroll and, skull and crossbones on it, and she's pouring it into a spoon, and she's getting ready to give it to her toddler. What What? one of you want to run over there? I mean, some of you, you'd go Rambo on her, right? You'd be running over there, knocking that out of her hand. You might even just, you know, come at her with some force. You're calling authorities. Why? Because you care for kids. And God cares for His kids as well. So Peter says, hey, be aware of their falsehood, be assured of their fate that judgment is coming. But then finally, he says, he tells us to be aligned with the faithful. And he gives us two examples here, the examples of Noah and Lot. Now, Noah, I think we understand because Noah was a guy who went against the tide. He was swimming against the tide. Noah was a guy living in a dark time that went against the grain. Noah is the picture of a faithful guy, a righteous man. In fact, when Noah was living on the planet, get this, he was considered, he and his family were considered to be the only God-fearing people left on the planet. That's how bad it got. Some of you might feel like you're the only God-fearing people on your block you know, or in your family. Imagine being the only God-fearing people on the planet and God says, I've just had enough and I'm going to just destroy this world with a flood, but I'm going to save Noah and his family. And for 120 years when he was building the ark, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He's calling people to repent and no one listened. Under a lot of ridicule, Noah is building that boat, telling him that water's going to come out of the sky. That had never happened before. There had never been rain. God watered the earth in a different way before the flood. But Noah believed the word of God, and he was faithful. And so Noah stands as an example to us of a faithful man that we are to be aligned with because, guys, listen, God calls us to swim against the tide of this world's In a world that is getting darker by the day, God tells us to stand as a light, to stand for righteousness. So I think we get the example of Noah, right? Noah was a last days believer. And we also are called to be last days believers. And so if we were talking to Peter, we'd be like going, great analogy with Noah. We get it. But Lot, that's like a different story, right? He mentions righteous Lot, and I think we kind of scratch our heads at that. And if you're familiar with the story of Lot, I mean, the statement, un, or excuse me, righteous Lot, just is kind of puzzling because when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land that God had promised him, his nephew Lot went with him. And they both had herds and they both had servants. And so they're going out, and they're both growing, their servants and their their herds are growing, and soon, soon, you know, they start quarreling. And you can read about this in Genesis 13, don't go there now, but later on on your own. Abraham says to Lot, hey, this is getting crazy, there's too many of us, we need to split up. And I'm going to let you choose the direction that you want to go, and I'll go in the opposite direction. And it says there in Genesis 13 that Lot looked over the plains of Sodom, and it reminded him of It reminded him of Egypt. They had just been in Egypt. Egypt was the epitome of the world. Wealth, prosperity, but also worldliness and carnality and wickedness. And Lot looks at the plains of Sodom. He's like, that reminds me of Egypt. That's where I want to go. You see, Lot had been enticed by the world. And so he moves his family to live on the outskirts of the city they're overlooking the city and all the bright lights lot is a picture of the believer who says hey let's see how close that i can get to the world without being contaminated but if you've ever done that you know the world has a way of just really pulling you in right of sucking you in and pretty soon Lot and his family are now living in the city and they're getting more and more comfortable with the worldliness and the ungodly lifestyle and by the time we get to Genesis chapter 19 the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah has grown so much that God says I'm going to destroy I'm going to wipe both these cities off of the face of the earth And he's going to send two angels there. And when the angels get there in Genesis chapter 19, they find Lot sitting in the gates of the city. And what's significant about that statement is that it would be in the gates of the city. That's where the leaders would sit. It was kind of like the town hall. It was kind of like the courthouse. And they would sit there and they would judge and rule and they would hear disputes And as I, as I would used to to read that, I thought that's just another great description of how far down Lot went. That he went to the place where, where he's now has a place of influence even in the city. But this weekend, as I was studying this again, it, it, I kind of changed my view of this because of what Peter writes here in verse seven. I want you to look at verse seven again. He says, and he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Here's what Peter's telling us. Lot wasn't comfortable anymore in Sodom. He was oppressed by the lifestyle around him. That's a heavy word. And then he says he was tormented day after day. And this is only my opinion, so take it for that. But I think Lot came to a place, and I think the reason why he, in Genesis 19, is in a place of leadership is because he's in a place where he's thinking, I need to make a change. This is getting out of hand. He might have been infatuated by the worldliness at first, but after a while, it had taken a toll on him. And if you've ever tried to live your life in Jesus on the fence with one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord, you know how miserable that is because you have too much of Jesus to really be comfortable in the world, but then you've got too much of the world to really be comfortable in in Jesus. And so you find yourself just being miserable. And Lot is in this wicked city, and his soul, is he just knows, man, this is not right. He's tormented. He's oppressed. And as I thought about this, I thought, I think there's a lot of us here that could relate to what Lot was feeling, where we're living here in California. And we are surrounded by wickedness and ungodliness, but not by choice. It's taken over our land. It's taken over our state. And we see the wickedness that's growing and the immorality that keeps being just shoved down our throats. That we have to, you know, being forced to accept things in in the school systems and, and stuff that is just so against what God says. And I think there's a lot of us that we feel oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And our souls can feel like they're being tormented day after day. How many of you feel that way? How many of you are like, yeah, man, you're describing me right now. That's how I feel. And, you know, as I, as I thought about this, I, I understand why there's a lot of Christians today that are fleeing California. That are just saying, man, I don't want to raise my kids here anymore. I can't handle this. I I understand. And I've talked to several families in our church who are, you know, on the, the, the brink right now of, of moving. And I get it. And I fully support, fully support those who have taken the time and really prayed and really sought the Lord and have sensed that God's saying, nope, you've got to, you've got to get out of here. I fully, fully support that. But I also know this. Hear me, church. I don't fault those who are leaving. But I also know this, that I think God is calling most of us to stay and fight. Calling most of us to, to stay and make a difference. I was talking to one family on Friday who were thinking, they were thinking about moving, they were praying, and God spoke clearly to them. Nope, you need to stay. So they bought a house here. They've got some little kids. They're like, we're going to stay and fight. We know that God, he wants us here. Listen, Jesus that we are called to be salt and light and he says the light can't be hidden the light is meant to shine in the darkness and that's what he's saying about us you you're meant to shine in the darkness you're the light of the world and you're the salt of the earth and in that day salt had many uses salt was used in in that uh culture as a preserving element because they didn't have refrigeration, so they would pack meat and fish in salt. Salt was also used to, uh, enhance the flavor of food, just like we use it today. Salt was used to heal wounds. But listen, in order for the salt to have any of those uses, it had to be dumped out of the salt shaker. And guys, we are called to enhance the flavor of the society around us. We are called to be a voice of truth that is spoken. We're to speak the truth in love. That's how we enhance the flavor. We're we're to be other-centered when everybody else around us is being self-centered. We are called to be a preserving element to stand and speak out against immorality, to protest ungodly practices that are being introduced into our schools. I'm, I think Christians should get involved in, in school boards and city councils, and all of us should exercise our right to vote. And we are called to be the healing agents in the lives of people who are being wounded by sin. But in order for us to do any of that, we must allow God to pour us out of the salt shaker. In other words, we can't isolate ourselves. The message for us as Christians in these last days, guys, is not to be hunkering down and isolating ourselves and going into hiding and just waiting for the rapture to happen. No, we are to be saying, God, here I am. You can use me. God, how do you want to use me? I'll close with this. Yesterday, I had the privilege of attending a memorial service for a guy named Victor Padilla. Victor used to be a part of our fellowship many years ago, and and a great man. And during the service, Victor's son, Gabe, who is a Calvary pastor in Pennsylvania, he gave a short little word, and he told the story of getting to meet the man who led his dad to Christ. You see, when Victor was in the Navy, he was on the USS Bainbridge ship. And on that boat was a man by the name of Roger. And Roger was an on-fire Christian. And Roger was telling everybody that he could tell and everybody that he, he came in contact with about Jesus. But no one would listen to him. And so Roger prayed this prayer, Lord, give me one. Just give me one guy on this boat. And the one guy that God gave him was Victor Padilla. And Victor got radically saved and went on to influence a whole bunch of people for Jesus, including his whole family. And he became a pastor and he influenced his kids and his son became a pastor and is now influencing people. And get this, all of that fruit in Victor's life isn't just his fruit, it's part of Roger's fruit. Because Roger prayed, Lord, just give me one And I was hearing that yesterday, and I just felt like the Lord just impress this upon my heart. Tomorrow, challenge the family at Vista to pray this prayer. That over the course of this next year, by October 31st of, of 2022, that all of us could say, God gave me one. Lord, give me one. One person that I can influence for the sake of the gospel. One person that I can lead to Christ. And who knows how many people your one is going to influence for Jesus. I want to challenge us, church, to pray that prayer. Lord, give me one. Just one. Just give me one. And sometimes when we hear him talking about being salt and light and all the needs around us and the wickedness, it can seem overwhelming. And we're like, Lord, where do I start? Just start praying that. Lord, give me one. Show me the one person that you want me to start loving on, that you want me to start sharing with, that you want me to start praying for. Just give me one. One last thing before we go. Peter presents a principle here that we see throughout Scripture, and it's this. That before God ruins the ungodly, he rescues the godly. Before God sends the judgment upon the world at the flood, he rescues Noah. Before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, he rescues, he takes out Lot. Look at verse 9. And then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to preserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Guys, I'm going to leave you with this. Our world is getting darker by the day, and we know that judgment is coming. And the Bible tells us that there's a day coming when God is going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And Paul the Apostle, writing about that day when God would pour out his wrath in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle said this, For God, though, did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. Paul says, look, there's a wrath that's coming, but good news, good news for those of you who know the Lord, you're not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation. And so we can rest assured, because in that passage beginning in chapter 4, Paul's talking about the rapture of the church and how God is going to take us out before the judgment begins. So he says, comfort one another. Edify one another with these words. Guys, right now our mindset should be this. We should be thinking, it's like the world around us is on fire. It's like a house on fire, and the house is going to burn down house can't be saved Bible says that things would get worse before the coming of the Lord we're seeing that happen right before our eyes the house is going to burn and what God's calling us to do is get as many people out of the house as we possibly can so we need to pray give us one Lord give me one Amen? amen let's pray together father these are sobering words that Peter writes to us here. And God, we thank you that you love us enough to warn us about false teachers and false prophets. There's many out there today. And Lord, I pray that we as your sheep, we as your church, we would be aware of the falsehood of the false teachers and prophets. But we would also be assured of their fate. That you are a just judge. That you're going to bring about a severe judgment on those who lead others astray in the wickedness of this world. And so, Lord, we want to be those who are aligned with the faithful. Encouraging one another. Stirring up one another. Comforting one another. And Lord, I pray for anybody here right now in this room or anybody watching online who's been living on the fence. They've been living with one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord, and they know that they are miserable inside. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that that would change. And with our head bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask right now, if you're in that place where you've been living on the fence, you're on the outskirts of Sodom. You're, you're trying to, one foot in the world, one foot in the Lord, and you know you're, you're miserable in that place. And you know that you're not where you should be in your relationship with Jesus. If that's you, where head bowed and our eyes closed. I, I just would ask you right now to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Just say, yeah, that's me. God bless you guys for your honesty. Anybody else that would say, just keep them up for a moment. Yeah, that's me. That's where I'm at. Lord, I pray for those right now that are raising their hand. I pray, God, that you'd give them the strength to turn away from the things that they've allowed into their lives. And that they would turn fully to you. To begin this day to follow you with their whole heart. God, I pray that you would meet them, that you would strengthen them. I pray that you'd surround them with others that can encourage them in their decisions to follow you. Thank you, Lord. But I also want to ask right now with our head bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here today and, and you've just been in that place where you're just like, Pastor Rob, how, how much darker can it get And you're frustrated you look at what's going on in our country and you look at what's going on what's here in California and in our school system and you're feeling that oppression there's a tormenting in your soul and you've literally been feeling like man I, I don't know if I can take this anymore I know I'm called to stand and I'm called to fight, but I'm just, I'm feeling wiped out. I don't know if I can take this anymore. If that's you, I'd like you also right now to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. A lot of you. And I get that. Father, I pray for these men and women that have their hands raised right now. That God, you would strengthen them. Lord, I pray that you would fill their hearts and minds with a sense of hope that you are on the throne, that you know what's going on, that you'd fill their hearts and minds with a sense of purpose, that you would show them where and how they can make a difference. Lord, I pray that their hearts wouldn't be overwhelmed to the point of giving up by the wicked but it would be overwhelmed with a sense of burden for you to do something, for you to move and work and even use us. And Lord, collectively as a church, we we say this today, Lord, give us one. Lord, give each of us one. One person that we can impact, one person that we can begin to pray for for the sake of the gospel. And we ask this today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.